All right, let me say good morning. So glad to see everyone and uh, top of the new year to you. Our prayer for our class this, this coming year certainly is that we continue in our mission as a church and we do our part as a class for the reaching out, folding in, and the growing up for the glory of God. This morning I want to speak to you. It's been wisely said that the Bible is not commands with stories, but it's a story with commands. And I think we'll see that as we open up our Bibles this morning. As we begin, turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy. We're going to spend time this morning going through Deuteronomy, and I want you to get prepared for that as you kind of uh, watch your hand out there. But if you look in the Bible, you will see all throughout the Bible, and you know that there's patterns, there's types, there's seals, there's shadows, particularly in the Old Testament, that point to the types and patterns of the gospel story. It's the story about the gospel, the gospel message. It's a message of redemption. We know that the entire Bible is about redemption, about redemptive history, and about our necessity and our need for a Savior. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus said, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, Luke 24, 26. He continued in Luke 24, 44, These are the words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Can you imagine? Talk about a Sunday school lesson. Sometimes we get kind of anxious on a 47-minute sermon, and I've timed, that's about typical, a 47-minute sermon. Can you imagine walking on the road with Jesus as he goes through the entire Old Testament and says, that's my story. Talk about a Sunday school class. Well, this morning, like the white stone pebbles that were dropped by Hansel and Gretel. How many remember Hansel and Gretel? I don't want to date myself. Just go along and raise your hand. I don't want to embarrass myself. But just like the white stones that were thrown apart by, thrown out by Hansel and Gretel when they were left in the woods, so too does God leave evidence for us in the Scriptures to find our way back home. And that's what we want to look at this morning. We find in Bible, in the Bible, of course, all kinds of patterns and types. For example, in the book of Joshua, seven times, we see the same cycle over and over. It starts out, there's sin. And sin gives way to slavery or servitude. So there always sin always leads to slavery. And once we are encapsulated into slavery... We reach out in supplication. We cry out to God, save us, spare us, help us. And supplication by God's grace and by his mercy alone always leads to our salvation. Once we're saved, we have a tendency to skip church, not read the Bible as much. Next thing you know, we're silent. And guess what happens? The cycle starts over and over and over again. You can see that all throughout the Old Testament. If you look at your own lives, you probably experience that. There's that cycle. Well, too, also, there's a cycle that I want to refer. It's not a book report this morning, but I want to cover this. Turning back to darkness, the biblical pattern of reformation, Rick outlines five principles found in Scripture that God defines as definitive principles informing His people. He created. He gave His laws and precepts. He gave His covenant, uh, His covenants. He established his elect, and then what happens? 
Well, guess what? Just like the sin cycle, we fall apart, we deconstruct all he's put together, and that cycle continues. This is a wonderful little book. It's out of print. But fortunately, there are... See, you want it now, right, when it's out of print. But there are copies in the library that are available, and I would commend that to you sometime. If you want a nice walk through the Old Testament, you can't uh, beat Rick's book talking about a pattern. Well, what's that pattern? In the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, God is in a, a period of formation. He's forming. He creates man from the dust. He institutes the marriage bonds. We see his creation of light from the darkness, the creatures, the waters, all he's desired for us to see, God is creating. He creates his chosen. And then comes what can be described from formation to deformation. That turning away from the forms, the covenants, the commands, the laws, and all those ordinances instituted by God. Life was given, but now everyone shall die of his own inequity. Jeremiah 31, 30. Man falls, man fails, and starts and begins to deform all those things, tearing apart all those things God had mandated and given to us. But just like King Jehoiakim, Colette, we talked about that a minute ago, just like King Jehoiakim, we've seen as our study of Jeremiah, takes out his penknife, cuts out holy scriptures, throws them in the fireplace, just like that. What's God do? God says, Jeremiah, get Baruch, the scribe. We're going to write it again. So every time you can see this pattern in the Bible, every time God has formed, we through sin have deformed, and there's a period of time in redemptive history, you see it all throughout the Bible, that God says, I'll form it again. It's a promise. It's as valid and as good a promise as any other given in the Bible. And that's what we want to look at this morning. Rick says, Scriptures themselves employ a a clear pattern of fidelity and infidelity, of reformation and deformation, the principles to which Christians may look as a clear guide for thought and action. In the foreword to Rick's book, R.C. Sproul said, it's both a historical and a biblical cycle. (coughs) Formation, deformation, reformation. Reformata, semper reformanda. Reformed, always reforming. The past tense, reformata, we've seen that which God has formed according to his intentions, his purpose, given by his word and his providential working all throughout history. We must preserve and defend that sacred trust. And then semper reformanda. Semper reformand, an ongoing duty to continue to regulate ourselves according to that word, continuing to purge out the leaven, continually reforming and combating all that we have deformed. The word declension comes to mind. That's used in the Old Testament. We begin to fall away from all God has given us to do. The commands is continue to do the first things we did to go back, to hold to the truths that God has given us in written sacred scriptures, to learn, to see from the past, to carry on the same work, worship, and faithfulness in the present as we saw in the past. Reformation consists of both holding fast to what we have received 
is our treasure from the Lord in engaging in the ongoing work of repenting and conforming to His Word in every aspect of our lives. Now, time doesn't allow me to drill into all of the five different principles that Rick laid out in his book. And again, I would highly commend that to you. But I do want to go skip the pebble over the water, cover four, and drill down on the last principle that God gives us in Deuteronomy's as a way of reforming again. You use the word, we use the word revival. You can't have revival without the reformation that God says, and he's going to tell us how to do that for America this morning. It's there. It's clear. It's there for us. It is, by the way, the Christmas story that we just went through, the Christmas story. Principle number one. If you look on your handouts, we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 9. First principle, for reformation to occur, it requires our exclusive and heartfelt devotion to the Lord, period. Our exclusive and heartfelt love and devotion for the Lord. Let me read Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And you know this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them. And you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and upon your gates. You know what this is. It's called the Shemach. This is the Jewish confession of faith. In the New Testament, Jesus referred to this verse of Scripture when he says, if you want to summarize all the law, love the Lord with all your heart and always follow him. It's interesting as you look at verses 4 through uh, 9 here, as you read that, you see there's some verbs, some action taking place on a noun. Well, look at these. Hear. Who is to hear? God's chosen. Love. Who are you to love? The Lord Yahweh God. Not a test question, by the way. So you, you can shout out. Who, what are you to teach? Teach the Word. Talk. What are you to talk? Talk the Scriptures. Talk the Word. When you sit and when you walk and when you lie down and when you rise up, who is that? That's me. That's you. Bind them. Bind what? Bind the Word. Bind the Scriptures. Write them. Write what? Write the Word. Write the Scriptures. God, Yahweh, is the focus. The love of God is the focus. The Word of God is the focus. Notice that the action moves from the individual and from the individual to the household and the children and from the children to the doorpost so the world will know and see the God that we serve. You get that kind of flow? It starts out that way. As for me and my household, in the year 2023, as a Christian in America, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Note, too, the exclusive activity that God's covenant gives and He commands to love. 
You are to love me. You can't serve two masters. Love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul. He is the source of our love. He's the cause of our love. And he alone is to be the focus of our love and our worship. He's a jealous God. Never, ever forget that. He is a jealous God. I love the way the Old Testament, and we shared that one time in Malachi, is the book of Malachi closes out our Old Testament. God is like, it's like a locker room talk, and God has gotten all his chosen together, and he makes indictments. And the first indictment he holds against his chosen people, and for 430 years, they're not going to hear from him, he's had it. And what he does, his, his, last, his first indictment is, he says, you, uh, I have loved you, but you not, have not loved me. And the response of the chosen, how have we not loved you? Great question God always asks us in America and our church this morning for Dave and his family, do you love me? They had lost their loving feeling. Plain and simple. To love our Lord God is a command, our heartfelt devotion to Him and to Him alone is the first principle for God reforming this country or any nation or any church. Number two, look on your handout. The, uh, this principle, uh, the second principle is found in Deuteronomy 28, 9 through 10 and also Deuteronomy 14, 2, holiness and separation. So let me start out with Deuteronomy 28. Turn with me there. 9 and 10. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you. If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways and all the peoples of the earth shall see you that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. In Deuteronomy 14, 2. Turn with me there. For you are a people, a holy people. Your God and the Lord has chosen you to be a people of His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Principle number two. We're to be separate, set apart, holy. Second principle. Now the world certainly doesn't fear us today as the scriptures just said. Chosen, the world should fear you. They do not because you've lost your first love. They were to be different. They weren't to copy all the nations around them. They were to be holy. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, New Testament, a holy nation, a people of his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9 Rick refers to this principle, number two, as centripetal. And by that he means always acting. Christians are always acting in a direction toward our sinus, or toward our center, toward our very axis. The practices of the people were to be different. Logic was different. Their intent was different. Their goals and methods were to be different. Their worship was to be different. Their marriages were to be different, unequally yoked. God's people were to be separate, holy, set apart from the world around them where they would surely experience the cycle again, pollution, and be led astray. Only the priest could enter the inner courtyard and the holy priest and the holy of holies one time a year. We have allowed the outside world into God's house to appease them, to make them more comfortable, more inviting, 
So we try to be like them so they'll feel comfortable when they come to God's house. We are not to be like them. Period. Paragraph. We cannot have reformation, revival, if the church allows the outside wolves and sheep clothing to come in, and we'll get to that. God says, I want you to love me and I want you to be different, holy, separate. That's when they'll know you are my people. Holy, set apart is our command. Principle number two. Principle number three. The normative character of prior revelation. What's God given us and left us to reveal of himself? Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. And we'll read Deuteronomy uh, 13, 1 through 5. And Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 22 for your reference. Let me read this. Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and a sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is what? Is testing you. Who's he testing? And you know to whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you and leave you in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall purge the evil from your fist. Satan, from the very beginning, has set apart preventing our reformation. There's always been and continue to be those false prophets. You hear them on television. They're at the bookstore near you, even the Christian bookstore, and you can read it. Those people who turn their voices away from Scripture and turn to their own self-interest. They deform all that God has left to form for us. God says He will test us in this matter. He'll test the true church. And we're to give no quarter. But likewise, we're to test them according to what? According to the plumb bob, according to Scripture. We've got to know Scripture. That's the test we will test them by. Then he says, pretty serious stuff. What are you to do with those false prophets, those false preachers in your church? Now, I wouldn't run around saying this, but the scriptures say, kill them. Serious business in God's house. And we take that responsibility. Paul confirmed that and he stood firm in his eagerness for this in Romans 1, 18 through 25. Deuteronomy chapter 13 tells us we're to know the Word of God. God never contradicts Himself, so we're always to go back to the revelation He's given us, given us in Scriptures. Love the Lord, walk in His ways, fear Him and Him only, keep His commandments, Andy Stanley, obey His voice, serve Him, and hold fast to Him. When the wolf comes in sheep's clothing, we are to test that one according to his book by the revelation God has given to us. 
down through all these years. The Holy Spirit never deviates in the light that shines. We're responsible as Christians, one called by God to know our scriptures well enough that we know the false prophets that may walk in around us. We are to bind those scriptures on our hearts. You know the Old Testament concept of philatteries in Jesus' day. They put a leather box with scriptures on there and they were called philatteries because they took literally this. Let me put the scriptures so you'll know I'm holy. New Testament, where are we to put the scriptures? Principle number three, in your heart. Have it hidden in your heart. You're responsible to test those that come, to observe and obey God's revelation, His His self, is our command. Principle number four, if we're to have reformation, reform, God will reform all that He formed in the beginning. We need to have social justice and mercy. That sounds a little bit funny, but actually let me read with you Deuteronomy 15, 7 and 8. If among you one of your brothers should become poor if any other towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever that may be. God expects us to treat our brother and sister fair and equitably. This principle is closely related to all the other three we just heard, and they flow naturally from that, particularly when you call ourselves to holiness and a principle of grace. He shows us that we're to show others. As Rick says, these principles are the baseline formation for the character of the Old Testament people and of the book of Deuteronomy with serious implication for New Testament believers. Deformation would arise when Israel forgot and betrayed all the commands God had given them. No reformation is biblically complete without these foundational principles as reestablished by God's people. Within these principles, Israel was formed by God and chartered as his own nation in the land of promise. Formation was in the land and reformation from all the disobedience that they exhibited coming out of the desert coming across the Sinai and all the rest of the Old Testament, all throughout history, we see that sad and sordid record of deformation, God's chosen, spiraling downward away from a loving God. It's clear all throughout the world today and in our country, surely we're in a form of, in a time of deforming all God has formed for His church his people, his creation. As Rick says, we are in a time of judgment. It's a pattern. Been in the scriptures from the very beginning. God shows us how to act. God tells us who we are. We run away in sin. We try to do it our own way. We fail. We fall. We scream out in supplication and prayer. Forgive us. Forgive me. Help me. Where's God? I'll write it again. If you seek me, you shall find me. And the last principle of reformation is the one I want to drill down quickly, and that's salvation by grace alone. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 27. And this is the heart of what I really want to get to this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 27. And I'm going to read verses 9 through 11. 
The fifth principle, and I think I've got it out of order on your outline, but the fifth principle of reformation by God is salvation is by grace alone. Old Testament as well as New Testament. Let me read Deuteronomy 9. Actually, I'm going to go through 16. Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all of Israel, keep silent and hear, O Israel, this uh, day, this day you have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments and his statutes, and I command you today. That day Moses charged the people, saying, When you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on another mountain, Mount Ebal, for the curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And all the Levites shall declare to all the men of the Lord in a loud voice. And I'll just read two to get the flavor. Verse 15. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image or abomination to the Lord, anything made by the hands of a craftsman, and set it up in secret. All the people shall answer and say, Amen. Verse 16. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. So what's happening here? Well, there's two mountains. On one mountain, God says, I want you to holler out and give out all the blessings that God has given us. And on the other mountain, I want you to holler out all the curses that God said you will be cursed if you do those things. And he added one thing. Holler, amen, to those curses. In other words, God is saying, if you can picture a big football stadium like you were in yesterday, you think they were screaming yesterday, can you imagine 12 tribes, six on one mountain, the blessed mountain, six on the other mountain, the cursed mountain, and they were to holler out before all the people, these are the thing God blesses. On the other mountain they hollered, these are the thing God curses. And they hollered and ended with an amen. Why? Well, they had to get through my heart and their head that truly when God gives a curse, let me get it right. Let me understand. We get it. We hear you, Lord. Truly, amen. I got it. I understood the bad things. God commands that. What a sight and a sound that must have been. Now, directions were also given to take a large uncut stones, pile them up and plaster them with perhaps lime. And the Bible says right on that, all the words of the law that I gave you. Now, we're not sure if that really meant the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments plus the Shema, the Ten Commandments, the Shema, and all the law that God had given and broken down in Exodus. We're not really sure, but it was plain. God says, I want you to write it down so you'll see it again. If you see it visually, maybe you'll get it in your head and in your heart. You won't, but I'll do it again. Sacrifice and offerings were to be given to the Lord. Now, the great question Rick writes in his book is, where would you think you would bring the sacrifice on the altar? On the Mount of Blessings or on the Mount that was cursed? On Ebal or on Jerusalem? That was the question. They were to raise their voice with strict obedience, and on one mountain they were to answer with hearts weighted down in sin. 
Well, the answer this morning is our Christmas story. The Bible message, the gospel message is very clear. Of all that took place, God says, I want you to set up that altar on the Mount of Curses. That might be a little surprising. I want you to set up my altar on the Mount of Cursings because it's there not on your own disobedience or your achievements or obedience that you might do, but I want to put my altar there where there's curses and sins. Mount Ebal, the Mount of Cursings, was the altar to be built and sacrifices made. Now, very quickly, let me sum it up. Why? Well, there are several quick lessons this morning as we see that salvation is by grace alone. Mount Ebal, the Mount of Cursing, speaks of us of the commandments of God. A silent testimony, even to this day, it speaks of the consequences and the curses of not keeping all that God had commanded us. Mount Ebal hearkened back to Genesis 3.15. Two kinds of people, cursed people and blessed people. Those that are chosen, those that are not. And that's the way God has set it up. And Rick says, or calls that the, the law of twos that we see oftentimes in scriptures. It shows us, the commandment showed us what sin looks like. It tells us how to be obedient and not do the things God has commanded. Jesus preached that himself in the curses and the law that he shows in the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament. We're to write it in our hearts, not cut it out of the scriptures, and throw it in the fire. Mount Ebal speaks of Calvary. Amongst all the cursings on the mountain and not on the Mount of Blessings, do we see the altar of sacrifice. There was the blood atoning grace, the sacrifice given that we as sinners could come back before a holy God. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Galatians 3, 13. We must go to the Mount of Cursings before we can get to the Mount of Blessings. High and lifted up is the one who took our curses to the tree. On Mount Ebal do we see Christ. Unblemished, unpolished, the cornerstone of our salvation, His righteousness. The stones of the altar were not to be chiseled by human hands. Isaiah prophesied he would be not a man of beauty that we should behold him by human appearance, but only by spiritual eyes. These are the same mountain peaks that the Samaritan woman, by the way, in John 4, found the Messiah. Remember that story? Here she confessed that, yes, Lord, between Mount Ebal and Jerusalem, yes, you must be the Christ, for you have told me all about myself. And she ran to those around her to, back to her city, and she said, come see the man who did everything. Can this be the Christ? Yes, the Christ on the Mount of Cursings. And Rick concluded here on Mount Ebal, not that the altar was unblemished by human hands, while they worshiped on the basis of divinely provided sacrifice in the context of human failure, the teaching of salvation by grace alone constrained their attitude towards salvation. There could be no trust without God's holy grace. By salvation, by grace alone, only constrain their worship. Offer God's people a wonderful assurance. He's given us the principles. 
if we're to have revival, if we're to save God's true church, now God's going to do that when I say us, but he's listed for us in Deuteronomy those principles. And we'll close with those precepts. We are to have exclusive love, reverence, devotion to the Lord our God. We fear no other. We revere no other. We must be holy, separate, outside the world, casting out quickly those that would dare come in with doctrine foreign, different, deformed, depraved from what God has given us. We're to read, study, meditate, preach, teach the normative character of prior revelation. The Bible is an errant, unchanging revelation to us. We must hold firm and love this book. We've got to be people of the book. We must continue, of course, and defend social justice and dignity for all people, but based upon God's standards and God's standards alone. And lastly, our hope this morning and our promise is not based on our frail attempts, but reformation comes by salvation by God, by grace alone. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Thank you, dear God, that you have written for us and you've left it for so many thousands of years. You've written this down. And we've seen this as a pattern as we fall away every time we make human attempts to come in your presence and before you. What a depraved, broken world we live in. Nothing new. Always been around. Satan's tried from the very beginning. But dear God, we thank you that you're always there to give us the instructions, the directions, the guidance to come back home. You love your church. We've read the book. We win. There will always be your remnant here. May we continue to be the light here at the corner of Rhett and River based on the true Word of God opened every Bible study time, preaching time we have together. And we thank you, dear God. And we ask that you embrace us with arms of love. And we feel your love today as we go out and others can see there's a God around here someplace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.